Amen. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are an awesome God. And we thank you for bringing us together, Lord, even though it's just online this morning. Thank you for this opportunity we have uh, to gather at the same time, lifting up our voices to you in praise, hearing your word together, and being challenged to follow you better than ever. Oh, God, we pray that uh, you would just fill this service, Lord. Uh, May you inhabit the praises of your people. May you speak to us through your word. And Lord, we pray that we would leave this service changed, ready and equipped to serve you better than ever. Lord Jesus, we want to follow you well. Help us to do that for the good of others and for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have just a few announcements for you today. Originally, we had planned on doing a live service at the warming shelter at 11 o'clock this morning. Uh, We did postpone that for two weeks Uh, since we were online only this morning. So if you would like to help us out at the warming shelter to bless them with a worship service, our plan is to be there on the 24th, two weeks from today. And we'd love to talk to you about how you can help uh, bless those guests of the warming shelter with a worship service. Uh, Also very important, we obviously had an update this past week about one of our staff members, uh, Patrick Daly, uh, who did test positive for COVID. Uh, During these difficult uh, times that we're going through in our nation, uh, sometimes it's very important for us to be able to get a message to you very quickly and efficiently. And so the two ways we do that are through our phone tree. It's called One Call Now, uh, where I will send out a message uh, this last week. Uh, It was rather late in the evening on Wednesday uh, to give an update on Patrick's situation and let us know that we would be online only today. Uh, At other times, uh, we use our email uh, mass message to get the word out to the congregation about different things. So a long story short, if you are not yet signed up to receive those voice messages or emails, uh, please reach out to us at the church office so you can be up to date uh, with our services and our ministries at Impact. We don't want anyone to be caught off guard on the day a ministry is supposed to take place. So uh, give us a call at the church office, 760-246-4100. The number's there on your screen. Or you can email our secretary, Holly. Uh, she can be reached at holly at greaterimpact.cc. So call or email us and let us know that you'd like to be on the phone tree call list and on the email uh, list so that you can get those updates in a timely manner. Thank you so much. Also, all of you who have been giving to support Impact with your tithes and offerings. Uh, If you would like to give a gift today, thank you so much for that. You can either mail a check to our P.O. Box number or you can give at our website or simply text any dollar amount to 84321. However you choose to give, thank you for your great support for our work at Impact Christian Church. And with that, make sure you have your Bibles on hand. We'll be diving into God's Word together right now. If you were to ask any Christian what the most important verse in the Bible is, my guess is most of those Christians you ask would cite John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that a magnificent verse? It's it's a great verse. It's a beautiful verse that summarizes the fact that we can never earn our salvation. Salvation is a gift from God. 
Eternal life is a gift from God, and the key to receiving that gift is faith. We must believe, truly believe in Jesus. But somewhere along the way, many Christians have gotten the idea that being a Christian is just about believing right. As, as long as I believe right, I will be right with God. As long as I believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God, as long as I believe in the virgin birth, as long as I believe that this is the inspired word of God, then I'll be a good Christian. I'll be in right standing with God. But there's just one problem with that. It's not true. It's not true. It's 180 degrees from what Jesus taught. 180 degrees from what the New Testament teaches. Jesus never taught us that Christianity is just a matter of believing right. Christianity is also a matter of doing right, of living right. We're not just followers of Jesus Christ if we believe in him. We're followers of Jesus Christ if we do what he says. We're believers and followers of Christ. And nowhere is that made more clear than in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who has ever walked this earth, Jesus Christ. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus condenses thousands of pages of practical theology into three little chapters. He condenses hundreds of great sermons into one extraordinary sermon. It's truly a masterpiece. And over the next several months, we're going to study this masterpiece together. We're going to study this masterpiece in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, not so that we will know it, but so that we will live it out. That's what Jesus wants. He doesn't want us to simply know it. He wants us to live it out, to do it. So if you are a Christian, you're not just a believer in Jesus Christ. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount will teach you how to follow Christ the right way. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is, as I mentioned, recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So make sure you have those Bibles handy and turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we begin this morning our study of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm calling this message today, Blessed are the Poor in Spirit, taken right from Matthew chapter 6. Verse 3. So we're going to be in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 1. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So if you have a copy of the whole Bible, it's about three quarters of the way through your Bible. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Here's how it reads. Now, when he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Hmm. Just those four verses is going to be our focus this morning. Just those four verses. Well, when Jesus preached this great sermon, he was most likely in his first year of ministry, if you go back a couple chapters, you would see in chapter 3, uh, at the age of 30, Jesus was baptized uh, by John the Baptist. 
after that, he immediately went into the wilderness where for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, Jesus fasted and prayed in preparation for his public ministry. As chapter 4 unfolds, uh, Jesus leaves his hometown of Nazareth. He selects his first two disciples, uh, Andrew and his brother Simon, whose name was eventually changed to Peter. Uh, Jesus travels throughout Galilee, preaching and teaching and healing every kind of disease. And, and this was Jesus' basic message, according to Matthew 4.17. His basic message boiled down to this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's a pretty simple message, isn't it? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. There are two very important parts to this core teaching that Jesus gave during his ministry. Number one, you and I need to repent. We need to repent. Remember that repentance is not just being sorry for your sin. Repentance is a spiritual U-turn. It's a spiritual U-turn. You go from uh, saying, you know what, I'm going to follow my own desires and my own wants and my own way to making a spiritual U-turn and say, forget all that. I'm going to follow Jesus' way for me. It's that spiritual U-turn. Repentance literally means a change of mind that leads to the way, leads to a change in the way that you live. So we stop going our own way and we start going God's way. That's what it means to repent. And then number two, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means in a nutshell that the king of the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus himself is near, the promised king of the Jews, the promised savior of the world. So you'd better start following in line with his kingdom marching orders. Since the king has showed up on the scene, we better fall in line with the kingdom's mar with the king's marching orders. Well, Jesus gives us these marching orders as plain as day here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount shows us what a changed life looks like. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us how to live in Christ's heavenly kingdom while still living here on earth. We can't miss this. Some have this fanciful idea that the Sermon on the Mount is simply telling us uh, how we're supposed to live once Jesus returns to earth and sets up his kingdom. Or it tells us how we're supposed to live in heaven when we die and are with God in heaven. That's ridiculous. Jesus taught 2,000 years ago his followers how to live in that day as followers of Jesus Christ. And he came to share with us the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is established here on earth. And as followers of Jesus Christ, as followers of the king, we must fall in line with his kingdom plan. And so this Sermon on the Mount is not something to be followed down the road. It's something to follow today. So Jesus walks up on a mountainside, according to these first couple verses in Matthew chapter 5. He walks up on this mountainside. He sits down. That was the customary teaching position for a rabbi in Jesus' day. They wouldn't teach standing. They would teach sitting down. Jesus sits down on a mountainside. Most likely it was one of the rolling hillsides above the Sea of Galilee outside the town of Capernaum. And so Jesus begins to teach. Notice it says he teaches his disciples. And so it's important to understand as we study this Sermon on the Mount that it is not a teaching primarily geared to those who are not yet Christians. 
It's a teaching primarily aimed at those who have already chosen to follow Christ. It also, though, makes clear early in the chapter and at the end of chapter 7 that there were large crowds listening in. And so Jesus was in a large space on this mountainside teaching those who had already chosen to follow him, knowing that in earshot were hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who were considering following him. So I have this to say to you this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount is for you. But if you have not yet made that decision to follow Christ, Jesus wants you to listen in. And you'll discover that Jesus Christ's way of living in his kingdom is unlike anything you've ever heard. It's truly amazing. And I hope you'll come to the conclusion that it's the best way to live. I hope that you'll choose to follow Jesus Christ as well. There's no way to live that's better than Jesus' way of living. Well, the Sermon on the Mount contains three types of teaching. Number one, it contains Beatitudes. We find those in the first 12 verses of chapter 5. Then starting in verse 13 of chapter 5, it goes into the second section of teaching, which is ethical teaching. This is the majority of these three chapters, the majority of this sermon. That begins in verse 13 of chapter 5, goes all the way through chapter 7, verse 23. And then finally, the Sermon on the Mount, in that last, oh, five verses or so of chapter 7, ends with a parable. And so there are these three sections, Beatitudes, Ethical Teaching, and then it ends with a parable. We'll look at each of these over these next few months as we study the sermon together. This month, in January, our focus will be on the first 13 verses, the Beatitudes. And my plan is to look at two Beatitudes every Sunday. So this morning, we'll look at the first two of those. Well, what on earth is a beatitude? What is a beatitude? Well, it's a good question. The word beatitude uh, comes from the Latin word uh, beatitudo, which means blessed are. And so one of the translations, uh, particularly that the Catholic Church used for many centuries, was the Latin translation of the New Testament. And so this term became popular, this Latin word beatitudo or beatitude in English. And it's kind of stuck over the centuries. And so this word beatitudo, this Latin word, literally means blessed are. So when we're talking about the beatitudes here in the first 12 verses of chapter 5, we're talking about the blessed ours. Jesus gives us eight blessed ours, eight beatitudes in the first 12 verses of this Sermon on the Mount. So what does the word blessed mean? Well, many pastors and Bible teachers translate it simply as happy. Uh, they say that these eight beatitudes here in the first 12 verses uh, teach us eight conditions under which Christ's followers will be happy. Uh, but if you really dive into this word and study it, you quickly learn that this word blessed means a whole lot more than happy. Uh, Jesus didn't give us these beatitudes as a recipe for happiness. If you do one or more of these things, Christians, you will be happy. If you don't want to do all eight, just pick one. You'll still be happy. No, that's not at all what Jesus was teaching here. 
I'll never forget what one of my Bible college professors, Dr. Noble Staten, uh, said about this word blessed. He did some in-depth research, and he came to the conclusion that this word blessed means so much more than happy. And his preferred translations of these of this term blessed uh, was, number one, congratulations, and number two, buoyed up. He said, Jesus is saying, congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Congratulations to those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That sheds some new light on that word blessed, doesn't it? But Dr. Staten also said it doesn't just mean congratulations, it also means buoyed up. Whenever I heard him talk about that term of buoyed up, I would think back to when I was a teenager and my dad would take us to a lake to go water skiing and me and my buddies would see a buoy floating out there uh, in the lake that separated the swimming section from the boating section and uh, we would swim over to that buoy and we'd climb up on top of it and try to get it to sink below the water's surface. And sometimes if we got enough of us on top of that thing, we could get that thing to sink under the surface. But what happened as soon as we climbed off? It bounced right back up to the surface, didn't it? It's buoyed up. No matter how much you push it down, it bounces back up. It bobs back up to the surface. And that's a great description of what it means to be blessed in Christ's kingdom. No matter what comes at you, no matter how many uh, trials you go through, no matter how much suffering we endure, no matter how many people criticize us or hate us or persecute us, with Jesus Christ on our side, we'll always bounce right back up to the surface. We are buoyed up in Jesus Christ. Amen? So, let's take a closer look at these first two Beatitudes. Beatitude number one, we find in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, if you are poor in spirit, you'll be buoyed up, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. All right, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, years ago, someone asked the evangelist Billy Graham this question. They asked him, "Uh, Billy, why doesn't Jesus tell us to be rich in spirit? Instead, he tells us to be poor in spirit. Well, that's a good question. And here's how Billy Graham responded to that young man that that asked that question. He said, if you put the word humble in place of the word poor, you'll understand what Jesus meant. We must be humble in our spirits. In other words, when we come to God, we must realize our own sin and our own spiritual emptiness and poverty. We must not be self-satisfied or proud in heart, thinking we don't really need God. If we are, God cannot bless us. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, verse 6. It's a great answer Billy Graham gave. He doesn't call us to be rich in spirit. He calls us to be poor in spirit. So poor in spirit means humble in spirit. It means spiritually empty in our spirit. The Expositor's Bible Commentary describes poor in spirit this way. It says, quote, To be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. It confesses one's unworthiness before God, an utter dependence upon Him, 
All must begin by confessing that by themselves they can achieve nothing. Think about that. Poor in spirit means we have to begin with the understanding that by ourselves we are nothing. As the commentary points out, all must begin by confessing that by themselves they can achieve nothing. I want you to chew on that statement for a moment. If I am a serious follower of Jesus Christ, if I am serious about being in Christ's heavenly kingdom, it must begin by me confessing that by myself I can't ever get there. It must begin by me understanding that on my own I will not be saved. By myself I'll never be on the road to heaven. By myself I can never be right with God. By myself I can never enter heaven's gates. I'm utterly lost and hopeless apart from the grace of God. If you don't fall in line with this truth, you can't be blessed by God. It can't happen. If you can't live out this first beatitude, there's really no point in going on to the other seven. Frankly, no point in moving on to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We have to get this first one right. Because at the heart of this first beatitude is a humble recognition of my weakness and, and God's strength. And understanding that I offer God nothing, yet He offers me everything. Some of us come to Christ each week. Remember, he's talking to Christians here, not talking to non-Christians. Some of us come to Christ each week with a chip on our shoulders. This first beatitude targets that chip with laser focus and says bluntly, it's got to go. Some of us come to church with notions of our own righteousness. And this first beatitude knocks us off of our high horse. Some of us go to God thinking that we'll impress Him with our religious heritage. I grew up in a, a good Catholic home. I was baptized as a baby and confirmed as a teenager. My wife and I were married at the church. But this first beatitude makes it clear, not only that our religious upbringing doesn't impress God, but that it actually turns Him off when we hold it up like it's some sort of trophy. God is not impressed with your religious accolades. If you puff out your chest and brag to God about making it onto the religious honor roll, Jesus Christ will flunk you out of class. It's true. Religious pride is repulsive to Christ. But he is drawn to spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty is attractive to Jesus Christ because it's honest. It's real. And most importantly, it gives him plenty of room to come in and fill us with more and more of himself. To fill us with more and more of the Spirit of God. When it comes down to it, the biggest problem with being a religious snob is that we are so full of ourselves that there is no room left for Christ. But when we are spiritually humble, spiritually empty, there is plenty of room for Jesus to come in and fill us with more of himself. Isn't that true? If you're already full of yourself, there's no room left for Christ. Oh, but if you empty yourself of everything that's you, there's plenty of room for him to fill you up. And he loves to come in and fill up his sons and daughters. 
when we admit that we are spiritually bankrupt and come to Christ as humble beggars longing to be filled with more of his presence and more of his blessings, it's then that he can bless us with the riches of his kingdom. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? The word of God is clear. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or as Jesus teaches us in Luke 14, verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be what? He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted by God. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying, follow me humbly or you won't follow me at all. Let's move on to the second, blessed are. The second beatitude. We find it in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Congratulations to those of you who mourn, for you will be comforted. If you are mourning, oh, you will be buoyed up by God. Oh, and you will be comforted by God. As you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll probably notice that many of Jesus' teachings are really upside down. They're topsy-turvy. You expect him to say one thing because certain moral teachings that we've come to internalize make sense to us. And oftentimes Jesus says the exact opposite. His teachings sometimes, oftentimes, seem upside down. They fly in the face of conventional wisdom. In Jesus' day, the crowds expected him, if he was going to give beatitudes, to say something like this. Uh, blessed are the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, blessed are the rabbis. Blessed are the Pharisees. Blessed are the Sanhedrin. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are those who uh, went to many years of religious training in the rabbi schools. And are wearing the fancy robes. And have those positions of authority and power. Blessed are those guys. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but that's not what Jesus says at all here in the Sermon on the Mount, is it? He, in essence, at this point, ignores all those religious accolades and the religious leaders and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He, in essence, says, blessed are the religious dropouts. Blessed are the spiritual failures. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 180 degrees from what? those followers of his would have expected him to say. And the crowds would have expected Jesus to say, blessed are those who rejoice, those that rejoice in the Lord. And Jesus doesn't say that, does he? In verse 4, he says, blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted by God. Based on what Jesus has just taught us in the first beatitude, it seems clear that in this second beatitude, Jesus is talking about mourning over our own sin. In the first beatitude, Jesus highlights the fact that you and I must come to him humbly. We must come to him humble. We must come to him empty with no arrogance about how great we are. And then in the second parable, excuse me, in the second beatitude, Jesus highlights the fact that you and I must come to him weeping over our own sin. You see how those two dovetail together beautifully? How they fit together hand in hand? The first beatitude, come to him humbly. Don't think you're all that in a pocket of change. Don't think you're the best thing since sliced bread. Don't think you're all righteous. Don't be all full of yourself. Come to him humbly. And as we come to him humbly, 
we come penitent, sorry for our sin and truly grieving over our own sin. Our human tendency is to exaggerate our own goodness and play down our own sin. Right? Chances are you and I have both done it this past week. We exaggerate our own goodness and we play down our own sin. But Jesus says, not so with you. If you are my followers, you will only be blessed if you scrap your notions of being good and truly grieve over your own sin. In 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, we read, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. For the last 2,000 years, people have read this verse and asked, well, what's the difference between a worldly sorrow and and godly sorrow? I, I can't quite make the difference out. Well, when we talk about grieving over our sin, we have to be honest with ourselves. Some of our grieving is self-serving, right? Some of our grieving is self-serving. Like when the cop pulls you over for speeding, you're grieving, but it's not because you were speeding. It's because you were caught, right? <laughs> the same is true in other areas of our lives where we sin. The grief is not because we sinned against a holy God. The grief is because we got caught because we're being punished. Some of our grieving is self-serving. It's worldly sorrow. But Jesus Christ wants to see godly sorrow in his followers. Well, how can we sort out that difference? Well, there's a, a great illustration of the difference that I read this last week by Jim Lewis. Uh, Jim is a biblical counselor with a wonderful ministry called Pure Life Ministries. Pure Life Ministries has been around for several decades and specializes in helping men to come out of sexual addiction. And if you're interested in finding out more, you can find them at purelifeministries.org. It's a great website and has some wonderful resources. But anyways, I was reading this uh, little article from Jim Lewis this past week, and he wrote this, explaining the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. He wrote, If one's sorrow is sorrow towards God, in recognition that all sin is first against His holiness and is utterly unselfish in its focus, it will lead to real repentance. But if one's remorse and regret remain selfish and self-centered, such sorrow only brings death. We see this many times over in the lives of men who come to Pure Life Ministries. Two men come before God because they have been exposed in their sexual sin. Both have hurt their families. Both have lost their jobs. Both have suffered financial loss. Both have incurred damage to their reputations. In so many ways, their stories are identical and all too common, yet their reaction to their situation is so different. The first man cries out to God begging for mercy. For his sins are an affront to God himself. He pleads not for himself, but for his wife and children. He knows that the losses he has incurred have hurt others, but are the just due for his sins. He begs for forgiveness because he misses fellowship with God. He comes to understand that Jesus has paid for his sins with his blood. He has a true change of heart and hates the sin that he once cherished. By faith, he receives God's forgiveness and is cleansed and restored. 
But the second man, the second man cries out to God also. He confesses his sins, he admits his wrongdoing, but he remains completely self-focused. He grieves over his losses, he bemoans the unfair treatment he has received, he demands justice, he has great remorse and regret, but for his own pain and not for the pain of others. There is no brokenness. Finally, he plunges into self-pity and despair. Two very different reactions. One is godly sorrow and the other is worldly. One leads to salvation and life. The other leads only to death. It's a powerful illustration, a powerful example in the real world. I have to ask myself the question, which man am I? Am I the first or the second man? The one who had truly godly sorrow over his sin or the man who had just surfacy, shallow, worldly sorrow over his sin? Which man am I? Which man are you? Do you and I truly grieve over our own sin, realizing that it is an abomination to a holy God and that it has harmed the people around us? Or are we like most people who only grieve over the consequences of our sin? We grieve over the fact that we got caught and we're having to pay the piper. And so we start pointing fingers and and we start blaming everyone else for our problems and whining about how unfair we've been treated. Wah, wah, wah. Are we like the first man or are we like the second? Why do most people point fingers and blame others? And have only surfacey sorrow. Why do most people do that? I believe most people do that because deep down we believe that our own sin is no big deal. Deep down most of us believe that the other guy's sin is a lot worse than mine. You will see as we go through the Sermon on the Mount over these upcoming weeks that Jesus blows that notion out of the water. You may not have murdered anyone physically, but if you harbor anger in your heart, you're just as guilty before God. You may not have cheated on your wife physically, but as we lust after another woman we're not married to, in God's eyes, we have committed adultery. We may not have stolen something from someone else directly, But as we covet what that person has, in God's eyes, we're just as guilty as that thief. Jesus blows out of the water this notion that my sin is no big deal, but yours is. He blows it out of the water and he says, you know what? If you're a follower of mine, you need go no further than verse 4. If you don't come to grips with the reality that you need to humble yourself before a holy God, And you need to be truly sorrowful for your sin. You need to truly turn from your sin. Oh, Jesus Christ calls us to grieve over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn over it, for they will be filled. They will be comforted. Now, what happens when we honestly confess our sins to God and grieve over our sin? Jesus is faithful and just to forgive, isn't he? Amen. First John 1 John 1.9 He is faithful and just to forgive. And he will bring us a deep comfort and a peace that we could never have on our own. 
So he gives us this wonderful challenge in these first four verses of the Sermon on the Mount. He challenges us to keep coming to Christ. As his followers, he says, keep coming to me, humble, empty, and truly sorry for our sin. And he will keep giving us the wonderful blessings of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, I want to continue to enjoy the blessings of his kingdom. I want him to say to me, oh, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And I want to experience his comfort in this crazy, difficult, rotten world that we live in. And it'll come to us as we come to him humbly every day. As we get rid of that self-righteousness in our lives. Emptying ourselves and allowing him to fill us up. And as we come to him sorrowful for our sin. Jesus Christ will not only forgive, but he will comfort us and bless us and set us on our way in his amazing grace to follow him better than ever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for opening our eyes to the reality that we are nothing without you, but everything with you. Lord Jesus, open our hearts to take hold of these truths that you have given us today. Blessed are the humble in spirit, the empty in spirit, the broken in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the reality that we must mourn over our sin. For too long, Lord, we have sugarcoated our own sin. And considered it to be no big deal, but it's a big deal to you. Forgive us, Lord, for looking at the speck in others' eyes and ignoring the plank in our own. Help us to come to you every day asking for your mercy and forgiveness. And we trust that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to bring us the comfort we need so we can be truly set free to follow you better and better every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Maybe you're here with us today online and you've never made a decision to accept Christ. It's not difficult. We like to share the ABCs. A, admit that you are a sinner. That you will not and you cannot make it to heaven on your own. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That he was your perfect substitute paying the price for your sins. And C, choose to follow him today as your Savior, and as you begin to obey Him, you're choosing to follow Him also as your Lord, your boss, your jefe, your master. Choose to follow Him today as Savior and Lord. If you've made that decision today, we'd love to talk to you about getting baptized. That's the way you make it clear to God and the world you're serious about following Him. You're going to be baptized. Reach out to one of our prayer counselors. Their names and numbers are at the bottom of your screen. You can call or text them. They would love to talk to you about accepting Christ today. Give me a call. I'd be happy to talk to you about accepting Christ today. Or if you're just going through some stuff, it's been a difficult week in our nation. It's been a difficult season for so many of us. Health issues and financial issues and job issues and relationship issues. If you just need to talk with someone and pray with someone, you reach out to one of our prayer counselors as well. We'd love to pray with you today. And with that, 
I'm going to lead all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ to take communion together before we go into our final song of the service. So have your bread and your juice ready. Remember that on the night Jesus was arrested, just a few hours before he went to the cross, he broke bread with his disciples and said, This represents my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Ask Jesus to forgive your sins and take of the bread, remembering his body that was broken for you. In the same way, after the meal, Jesus took the juice or the wine. He said, this represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Go to him in prayer and say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me for what I've already done today that was against your word. What I did last week, what I did last month, Lord, would you forgive me and open my mind to understand how wrong I have been. Forgive me for thinking my sin was no big deal. Please forgive me, Lord Jesus. Let's take of the juice, remembering his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And as you continue to go to Christ in prayer, as you reach out to one of our prayer counselors, let's be singing this final song of the service together. God bless you, church. Lord willing, we'll be back in action next week, 9 a.m., for an in-person service, 10 a.m. online. Uh, But make sure you reach out to us if you're not getting those updates because we want to get them to you in a timely manner. God bless you. Let's lift our voices together for this final song.